The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Even though I was never the most coordinated kid, I always enjoyed football. I was always interested in football. Um, you can ask Bert and I used to play a little bit with some guys. Uh, I would run around at least. Um, it wasn't exactly a pretty thing. But I, I, was always, I always enjoyed and was interested in football. Even, uh, even really young, I remember uh, this one shirt that I wore. I guess I was probably about uh, seven or eight, I think maybe third grade. It was a, a Dallas Cowboys shirt, and it was uh, one of those three-quarter length shirts. Anybody remember those from the 80s? And it had like, I don't know, like Dallas, I don't know, some, like a helmet or something on it. And I just thought that was awesome. I remember wearing it like every chance that it was clean. I remember getting on the bus and wearing that thing, being so proud of it. Um, but uh, as I got a little bit older, I guess it was probably about age, I don't know, 11 or 12, when I really started to become really interested in football enough to like actually sit down and watch a game. And I didn't have anybody to sit down with and explain football to me. I just knew I was interested in it. It was sort of like, uh, for me, if you guys know much about me, I love coffee. And uh, I, I knew as a kid that I was going to like coffee growing up. And I think one of the reasons was, uh, whenever I was a little kid, we had my aunt, I grew up in the country, and we had like a family land, and my aunt lived next door. And one summer, I would get up, I was probably about five or six years old, and she was my great aunt, and I would go over to her house uh, before my mom got up, and my mom didn't know this was going on, and she would make instant coffee for me. Would I say instant coffee was mostly like milk and sugar and then like a little bit of the instant coffee mixed in? And I remember drinking that, and she would make me cheese toast with government cheese. Anybody remember government cheese? It, maybe you don't have to shot out of your head, but I, I, we had government cheese, and so she'd make me cheese toast with government cheese and the coffee, and I thought, man, that is awesome. When I get older, I'm going to love coffee, even though I didn't really know what coffee tasted like. And I knew, like, I'm going to like football, but I didn't even understand the whole concept of the game. So I would sit down and I'd watch football on Sundays when I got about 11, 12 years old. And I love to watch John Madden. Anybody remember John Madden? Uh, he drives a lot of people crazy, drove a lot of people crazy. I love John Madden because I could sit and watch a football game and he would explain the game to me. He would tell me what was going on. He wouldn't just be like other announcers that would tell you what happened. He would tell you what was happening and why it was happening. He would draw on the screen and tell you like the whole details. And I knew, even though I don't understand this game, if I sit here enough Sundays and watch this football game, John Madden will teach me about football. He will teach me what a first down means. I don't know what that means. When I had it on the stream like third and four, I had no idea what that meant. I watched for weeks and weeks before I even realized that was yards like to the next first down. I had, I, had to, I had to learn bit by bit as he explained the game to me. And I, but I knew that if I watched long enough that John Madden was going to explain to me because he was an authority in football and I wasn't. And so I would sit there. I was the willing pupil and Madden would explain to me what was going on in the game, what the offensive linemen were doing, what the defensive linemen were doing, what the quarterback was doing when he was reading the defense and he was standing there before the ball was hiked, what the, what the wide receiver was doing on this route, and I learned as I went. And sometimes he would tell me something was good that I didn't understand. Like if the quarterback would throw the ball away and it seemed like a wasted play to me. Or you see a running back run into a middle of seemingly like a pile of other men and nothing happened. And, he would, and I was like, man, that was a terrible play. And he would explain to me why it was a good play. 
Even if I didn't understand the moment, I knew that he was the authority and I was the willing pupil. I just needed to watch and to listen and to learn why. And whenever we approach a passage like today, how you view the, view the Bible and how you view God will determine how you view a passage like this. Because frankly, it's a confusing, a confounding, and irritating passage to read for almost anybody in this room. But the question that we come to it is like, what sort of thought process do we come to a passage like this with? Am I going to watch that football game and tell John Madden what should have happened and that he's wrong? Or am I going to sit there and let the authority for the game explain to me what is going on and let me learn? what's going on, even when I don't understand it fully, because I know that he understands it fully. <laughs> it's, when we get to this passage, it's very easy, not just to not understand what Paul is saying, but to not like what Paul is saying. And it's easy to not even understand, like, just even why he's even saying it, or even to, to see this passage and to frankly not like Paul. This, is, this passage is one reason that a lot of people consider Paul, the Apostle Paul, a misogynist. They think that he hated women and he viewed women as second-class citizens, and this is one of the primary reasons that they think that. Considering all that, it's easy to just sort of glide over a passage like this and not even talk about it. The, uh, the Anglican lectionary where they preach through the Bible doesn't even have this in, to, in the lectionary. They just don't even mess with it. They just move on. Uh, that, frankly, is why we teach through books of the Bible. Because, frankly, if I was teaching on subjects that I was interested in or I wanted to talk about, we would never, ever look at this passage. But today... We laid out the calendar and said we're going to preach through the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. It was right there. And so we get a double barrel this morning as a church planner, as a leader, on, on Spring Forward Sunday when half the team is late and not here because we're trying to figure out the time thing and half the group is not here and we're trying to figure out the whole time thing and we get this passage. So if you have your Bible, he just read it for us. Josh, thank you, Josh. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16 and see what, if we can figure out what Paul is talking about here. First, let's look at a little background on the book of Corinthians and why he's writing this. Paul is a church planter. And he went and planted a church in the city of Corinth. It was a large, metropolitan, fast-growing area. Sort of like if you take a, it's a boom town. Sort of if you take a Las Vegas and New York and San Francisco and kind of mix it all together, it was that kind of place. It was a large place. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of money to be made there and a lot of stuff going on. And Paul shows up in Corinth and he plants a church there. And the gospel comes in and it revolutionized. The good news of who Jesus is and what he did on our behalf had revolutionized the lives of the people in the city of Corinth, the church of Corinth. And when they heard the story of who Jesus was and what he had done for them, they realized that everything had changed. And so Paul stayed with them a year and a half and helped establish the church. And now he's been gone for three years since the church started. And the churches continue to, to grow and to move on. And it's a very spiritual church. It's a very active church. There's a lot of cool things that are going on in this church. A lot of crazy things, as we'll see in the coming weeks. And the one thing they had understood 
was that the gospel had changed their lives. It had revolutionized their lives. Uh, when, they, when they heard it, uh, they understood that there is neither now new Jew nor Greek, male nor female, that they were free, they were freed. We talked in the past, past few weeks how they had been freed from the bondage of sin and death on their lives. They've been freed from their former ways. They've been pre- freed from the power, external power that was uh, controlling them. Now they were free. They were made free in Christ. And they, some of them took that freedom and they started to run with it. And some of them ran, quite frankly, too far with it. So chapters 8 through 10, Paul, and I think the beginning here, chapter 11 as well, Paul is really dealing with the issue of people in the church of Corinth who were exercising their rights. They said, look, in Christ we have the right to do this and we have the right to do that. And Paul's saying, yes, you have the right to do that. You're free to do that in Christ. But the question is, What is going to glorify God most in the church? Is there sometimes that we're going to not exercise certain rights that we have as a believer for the sake of the other believers around us? And I think that's what he is kind of finishing up here in this section that we're going to see. Now, we don't understand when we get to this section... It's kind of confusing and frustrating. Uh, I read a lot of commentaries. I've looked at the, as much as I could in this passage. And the, quite frankly, we just don't know exactly what particular problem Paul is addressing in this passage. And that's what's frustrating about it. Is that other, other sections, he'll say, now, this is what you, he'll, he'll, he's alluding to a letter that this, the church at Corinth had written him, asking him some questions and talking about some problems they had. And Paul will reply to some of the questions that they had. And here, he doesn't, he doesn't recount what the issue was. And so without knowing what the problem was that he's addressing, it's difficult to know what, what the answer means when he's answering them back. You guys understand what I'm saying about that? And so... Even, and it's hard to even get clues from the passage because there's some wording here that's weird. Because at one section, you guys probably notice, he's talking about a, a woman needs to pray or prophesy with her head covered. Because if it's uncovered, it dishonors her head. And that if a man has his head covered, it, it dishonors himself. And what does that mean that when he says covering? Is he mean, is he, and the, the wording isn't clear. It, it, it could mean a, like, something actual on your head. It could mean hair, but then it wouldn't make quite sense. Like, why would you say a man's head is uncovered? Because that would only be like a bald guy. And it, it kind of goes back and forth. And then he says, uh, he talks about your hair being up. And then he talks about your hair being down as a sort of a, a covering for the woman, almost like a shawl or a, your version may say veil. And frankly, that's an unfortunate uh, translation if your translation says veil. If this sounds confusing, just stick with me for a second. We're going somewhere. We're working through this, the difficult part here. If your, if your translation says veil, because nowhere says veil in this passage. But so the translators have a difficulty even trying to figure out what he's saying because it seems to even contradict himself in the same passage about hair being short and down and up and then something on it and something not on it and a man praying with his head uncovered and a woman praying with it uncovered and what's going on here. It's very confusing. But here's what we do know. I think there's a couple of clues that we can look at to to help us to sort of unlock what he's saying in this passage. Because what we do know that is going on is there's some sort of issue regarding gender. And if you have been in a relationship very long, or if you've been married for very long, then you know that issues about 
the difference between men and women can be explosive. Is that a fair statement? Whenever, whenever you're... Your men and women are talking, they're trying to figure out the differences between men and women and our roles and what's going on. And we just see it in society at large and there's a, that's a, just a big picture of what happens every day and our little relationships that we're trying to figure out, like little details like who's going to take the trash out and who's going to balance the checkbook and uh, who's in charge here and who needs to do what the other person says and how we're going to, who, who's working and who's staying home and how does this all play out? Like, those issues can be, shall we say, contentious, explosive. And so, like, any gender debate, any gender issue, when the Corinthians are hitting up against a gender issue, it becomes explosive. And what Paul does for us, I think, here, is he addresses a particular cultural situation in the church at Corinth, which are matching their particular culture with some timeless truths that go across all cultures. So here's what we think we know about the culture in Corinth. Uh, from what we can see in some statues that remain, women, it seems, would generally have long hair, and when they would be married, they would wear their hair up on top of their head like a whatever, I pictured Marge Simpson, but I don't think it was that big. They would wear it up on top of their head, and they would wear a, like, a, like a, some sort of like fabric covering on top of that. And it was a sign that they were married and that they were of particular standing in society. The only people that did not wear their hair up and with some sort of like, like a fabric thing, not a veil coming down, but a fabric thing on top of their head would be the very, very, very richest women and the temple, uh, the, the temple prostitutes. Those would be the two women that wouldn't. Or if the woman was shamed, and he talks about shameful in this section, if a woman was shamed, if she had, was caught uh, in adultery against her husband, her hair might be shaved off as a sign of shame for the culture that's around them. And so what we think may have been happening is that because the gospel came to the people of Corinth and they, they realized they are free and there's neither now, uh, we see in Galatians 3.28, there's neither now Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is what Paul said. When they heard that, then they, some of the people took and ran with that. They said, look, man, we're free, and so some of the women were saying, hey, we don't even have to bow to societal norms anymore, and they would come into the worshiping assembly with each other and pull their hair down and start praying and prophesying out loud to each other. And that would be a distraction for the men in the assembly because what do we say about the only women that would not wear their hair up with the fabric thing, they would wear it down, would be either the very, very richest women or the temple prostitutes. So, the, so men aren't used to seeing women walk around like that. So now they're coming together and we're worshiping together and these women are pulling the whatever things that keep their hair up and it's like all flowing down and the guys are like, whoa, what's going on here? And because guys are guys, right? And they're distracted. You know, no matter how spiritual you are, all of a sudden the women's hair flowing down. You're not used to seeing that. All of a sudden you're distracted and you don't even know what passage we're in or what song we're singing or what verse we're on right now. You're looking and thinking about other things. There's distractions going on in the church. And Paul is saying, hey, look, you're free. 
But let's not forget that, uh, that we still live in a particular society, in a particular culture. And if you run with your freedom to the fullest extent, you're going to distract the people around you, and you're going to distract people from actually Christ and himself. I think that's what's going on here. What we see that Paul does here, and we're going to look at a couple of uh, verses that I think are the keys that unlock it, is that even in contentious situations, in our marriage, in church, and it gets in culture, when it gets confusing about gender differences, what we have to lean on, even though things look different from age to age, is certain universal truths. Look. Our society looks, gender, looks different in regards to gender today than it did 20 years ago. But our society in general looks different today than 20 years ago. I was talking about this passage some guys this week on, on Wednesday in the, in the office. Uh, think about, look around in this room. Uh, if you went to church dressed like you are now 25 years ago in the South, you would be a weirdo. But now if you come into most churches dressed in a suit and tie, you're the weirdo. Society changes. Think about how, how marriage and society and households have changed in the last 50 years in regards to women working and who does what. Things have changed, right? And so society changes, culture changes. Some of that may be good, some of that may be neutral. But what does not change are the timeless truths that Paul uses to unlock this passage. So he's talking to a particular culture situation, but there's a few truths that he uses to apply to their culture. The timeless truth. Verse three. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. He's going to talk about three groups of people here, or three people. First of all, Christ. Christ is the head. The head of a wife, the, I'm sorry, yeah, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So then he goes into verse 4, he's talking about every man who prays, excuse me, or prophesies with his head covers, dishonors God. We don't know what that means, so how can we say that applies to us? So there are some churches that go around, they say, well, that means that men can never wear hats in church or when they pray. And that women always have to have their hair end up in a bun or wear a, and or wear a hat and or have some sort of thing laying over their head. It's sort of a sign of covering for them. But I think that's misapplying what is being said here in this passage. Because he's talking to a particular culture, but he, what he's doing is he's teaching them how to apply a timeless truth to their particular culture. So think about that. I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ. Christ Man, his wife. Now notice that he doesn't say the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is a man and, or men in general. Does he? What does he say? A husband or a wife, right? So I or have no headship over Becca. The head of Becca is Justin. I'm not her head. I'm no greater, I'm not above her. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. We are equal, but in the context of marriage, the husband is the head of the wife. And the husband's, the buck, when we say the buck stops there, the buck does not stop there. He's, just as the wife is accountable to the husband, the husband is accountable to Christ. 
The buck doesn't stop there. The buck stops with Christ. He's the one who calls the shots. What we see here, first of all, is something that's amazing, is that the gospel came to the church at Corinth and the gospel destroyed the man-made pecking order. What we see is something revolutionary about Christianity. We see rich and poor, slave and master, men and women who now live together and worship together. Paul was a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish teacher. And this is incredible for him to even talk about men and women who are together worshiping and praying together because in a Jewish synagogue, the women wouldn't even be worshiping in the same room with the men. The women were considered second-class citizens. They were relegated to a whole different room of worship. The, real, the men, the real people worshiped in the room and the women were relegated to another. Now the gospel came and said, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are slave or free, you are equal under Christ. Because what it did is it took out of the hand of the mighty their might and said, no matter how awesome you think you are, you are not good enough. You are far worse off than you ever thought you were. And it went to the poor and the lowly, and it took out of their hands their lowliness and said, no matter how low you think you are, no matter how low society has told you you are, you are loved in Christ. He has placed a value upon you. He has ransomed you. The Son of God paid his blood for you, so your life is of incredible and infinite value to God. And so it raised the lowly and it brought down the mighty. It put in both of their hands the same thing. That you have been adopted by God. Look at the second half of that section in Galatians that I mentioned, Galatians 3, 28 through 29. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring Heirs according to promise. It says not only are you a child of God if you're a believer in Christ, but you are an heir. Not every, not every child of a great man in Jewish culture was an heir. But you have all been made heirs. A son of a Jewish mighty man and a daughter were two different things. The daughter was property. The male was the heir. But he says, in Christ, you are all heirs. And that was and is a revolutionary idea. I don't know what your background is. I don't know how you think about yourself or what people have told you about yourself. I am a fairly uneducated country dude that grew up between Conway and Georgetown in a lower, maybe like in a good year, a lower middle class family, mostly just a lower class family. But in Christ, I am loved and valued. He has placed an infinite price upon me, not because of my inherent value, but because he saw it in me and he paid that for me. I don't know what your background is. I don't know what you feel society has told you or your family has told you. You'll never measure up. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not rich enough. You come from the wrong side of the tracks. You're the wrong color. You're the wrong gender. In Christ, if you are a believer, you are an heir of equal 
value and standing as Jesus himself by his sacrifice for you. It's a revolutionary idea. So can you see how that idea would sort of make people like, wow, this is amazing, so, so we don't have to worry about any difference between male and female anymore, right? The second point is not only does the gospel come and destroy the man-made pecking order in their midst, but the gospel came in and reestablishes the created order. I don't know if there's a, a single passage that we refer to more at Doxa than uh, Genesis 2 and 3. And that, that's because it's there that we see the glorious design or origin of man and we see the tragic fall of man. If you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Or if you don't, you can just sit there and listen to it. I'm going to go pretty fast. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Did you, did you see in this passage where Paul was talking about the, the glory? He says, the, for man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man. It's talking about that idea of image. God created man in his own image. In a unique way, man reflects the unique glory of God in a way that no other part of creation does. We were created in the image of God. Look at that at the end of that. It's very important. Male and female, he created them. Look at Genesis 2, 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. So God created man. He created the creation and he said it was good. Yet he comes back and says, it is not good that man should dwell alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. They put out a, they put out a full-scale uh, search and they couldn't find anything. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. This is what it's talking about when he says the woman is the glory of man. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, he sings a song, this at last is, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God created in the very beginning men and women to uniquely reflect the glory of God. Women are not lesser, even though they're taken, woman was taken from man. She reflects and shows forth a unique part of the glory of God that men can't. Guys, are you with me on this? Women reflect a part of the glory of God that you and I do not. Have you seen a woman? They are beautiful. You and I are not. <laughs> women are put on the hook there might be, there's tons of different personalities and, and shades in this, but women are generally put on the hook different than guys are. They think and act about things differently, you guys track it with me, than we do. And they uniquely, women, you uniquely reflect the glory of God in your unique and feminine way. God is not purely masculine. I don't understand how this works because the Bible refers to God in a masculine sense, but God created men and women, male and female, in his image he created them. And so in 
in a beautiful and unique way, you reflect the glory of God in a way that men cannot. And men, you reflect the glory of God in a unique way that women cannot. And therefore, we need each other, the total package, the total picture, to get a picture of the glory of God. Mankind was made in two distinct and glorious genders. That is to reflect the glory of God in distinct and noble ways. This is the issue that Paul is addressing in this, in this particular circumstance. He's saying, look, what's at stake here is not whether you're just going to worship with your hair down or, wear, or hair up, but in your unique culture, for you to wear your hair down is to reflect that you are no longer under the authority of the man. And in their unique culture, for you to cut your hair short is to say, I don't want to be a woman. I want to look like and act like and portray myself like a man in a masculine way. And he says, if we do that, we are ignoring the unique way that God has designed you, programmed you to reflect his glory. What's at issue is an issue of God's glory. The glory of God in the way you and I are male and female, and the issue is the glory of God in the way you and I are man and wife. You and I are made free. We're on a level playing field before God in Christ. There's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, yet that doesn't mean that we abolish and throw out the idea of male and female. It means that something greater is being reestablished. The original God-created order for man and woman to uniquely and nobly reflect the glory of God in their unique ways. It should be no wonder then that there have been such, there's such great angst and confusion surrounding gender, is there? If, if you and I are created and programmed to uniquely reflect the glory of God in my masculinity or in your femininity, then it only stands to reason that there would be a great confusion and angst about how that works out because we see when man and woman were in the garden, that Satan came to them and tempted them in unique ways. And we see that in, in, the, in the curse that, that came immediately preceding the sin. God said to the woman, your desire will be to rule over man. The wording there, that's what the wording means. Is your desire will be for man. And the picture is sort of like, a, like when you're riding the car with Justin Kramer and you want to reach over and grab the steering wheel to take it in a different direction. That's going to be your temptation as a woman to reach over and grab the steering wheel and make it go in a different direction. And the man's temptation will be like your great-grandfather Adam who it says was standing nearby when the woman was tempted by Satan. And he was apathetic and passive. So the man's called to be ahead, but we're tempted to be passive. And a woman's called to submit, but you're tempted to grab the reins. It only stands to reason. And then we see the fall and how that has cascaded over time We've had this sense that there should be a difference, but we don't know what that should be. And we keep trying to figure it out sort of blindly. It's still the attack of God's enemy against God's glory reflected in his creation. And it's still the result of brokenness created by the fall. The temptation for men to be passive and women to grab the reins. The gospel is the good news 
that the power of sin and death has been broken on your behalf. You're no longer bound, if you're a believer today, to the societal ideas of what, men, what the difference between men and women should be. You've been freed from the power of sin and death to reclaim and reflect the glory of God in your unique gender. Now, the new birth, you've been awakened and freed to see, enjoy, and reflect God as intended. That, in you, that includes the, the distinct glories of masculinity and femininity. The man-made pecking order of importance, has, this idea has been, has been debunked by the gospel that men are more important than women or the rich are more important than the poor or Jew is more important than the Greek, that's been debunked and done away with by the gospel. But Paul is reminding us that we don't want to throw off the distinctiveness of our God-glorifying gender. We do that in the way that we maintain the distinctiveness of our gender. Look, I grew up with a dad who was passive and he wasn't present, and he didn't teach me what it meant to be a man. I knew that. So I had this sort of idea as a, this sort of like gnawing thing in the back of my head as a teenager and as a young man telling me, look, you don't know what it means to be a man. And I'm not the only one. We have a society of men who are like that. And you see it in the ads of the shows that we watch. The ads are consistently telling you, not just telling you with sex, but they're telling you this is how you be a man. Watch it. Watch a football game, watch a baseball game, watch a basketball game and see the ads that, that, that run. They're, they're portraying to you, hey, this is what you wear, this is what you eat, this is what you look like, this is how you ca- carry yourself if you want to be a man. Because there's sort of idea, this knowledge inside us that being a man doesn't mean just certain anatomical changes have happened to me. There's sort of a mindset change that has to happen. And women, you are being bombarded with the idea to saying to you that equality equals sameness. That to be equal to men means that there is no difference between a male and a female. And we see that's not true. You and I are to reflect God's glory in our distinctive, the distinctiveness of our gender. We also reflect God's glory in the way that we relate to our spouse in either a role of headship or submission. Again, not all women to all men, but a wife to her husband and a husband to his wife. Notice what it said. It said, a head of a, a, head of a woman is man, but we said the buck doesn't stop there, right? Who's ahead of that? Christ. So it's sort of like at work. Uh, you may be accountable to the top manager, the owner of the company, but more than likely or not, there's a couple of layers between you and where the buck stops. And whenever you defy your assistant manager, have you justified the assistant manager? You defied the manager above that and all the way to the ownership. And that, man, that assistant manager may be a jerk. He may not deserve his title. You may be t- more talented, more qualified than him or she, he or she. But when you defy them, what happens? You get a pink slip from the top all the way down to you because you defy the pecking order all the way up. When you and I, when women, you're called to be submissive to your husband, you're not called just to be submissive to him because he deserves it or he's awesome. You're called to be submissive to Christ by being submissive to your husband. 
We also do that in the way that we live and worship together as men and women. And we seek to do so in such a way that um, reflects and honors each other and our differences in our gender. I was looking at the career stats of Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen the other day. Jordan eclipses Pippen in all but two categories, which is pretty amazing because Scottie Pippen was voted one of the 50 best players in the NBA of all time. And he played second fiddle to Jordan. The only two that Michael Jordan didn't score better, only two categories he didn't score better than Scottie Pippen in was rebounds and championships. He had slightly more rebounds with the same number of rings, baby. Now, Scottie Pippen, and he looked around the rest of the NBA, and he saw all those jokers out there. He was better than almost all of them. And yet on his team, he played second fiddle for almost his entire career. And yet, the Bulls were a force because Pippen knew his role. He played in his role. He didn't try to play out of his position. He played the best second player to to Michael Jordan that anybody could be, even though he was better than almost everybody else in the NBA. And you know what? They won. If he decided not to play according to his role and try to be the big dog playing with Jordan, they would not have won. Everybody would have lost. Pippen would have been Pippen. The Bulls wouldn't have been the Bulls, and Jordan wouldn't have been Jordan, and they wouldn't have had six rings. When we don't know our position, when we play out of position, everybody loses. And the last point, real quick. The gospel not only reestablishes the created order, but the gospel turns our idea of authority on its head. What is God talking about when he says headship? Verses 8 and 9, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Verse 11, these are the other verses that I think unlock the rest of the passage. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as, man, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. What, what is God talking about when he's talking about headship in these passages? I wonder if he's not thinking about the same thing that we're thinking. Because we tend to think about authority in the terms of pecking order, like the one who's more in authority is better or greater than the, less, than the person who's below them. But when God talks about headship, I think he's thinking about service, sacrifice, and meekness. Do you know how I know that? Because in this passage it says that while a husband is head of his wife, He says Christ is the head of both of them. And how did Christ show his headship to us? Matthew 20, 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your what? Your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your what? Slave. Even as the Son of Man 
came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The way Jesus came in leadership and headship to us was through service and sacrifice and love that he gave himself up for us. That's the kind of headship that God shows to us. And then, that's the kind of headship we are called to show to our wives. And ladies, that would be so hard to submit to, would it? It's not hard to submit and love and worship a resurrected Savior who died for you and me. That's the flavor that should be in our midst as a community of believers, in our marriages, and in our lives as uniquely male and female. The glory of God reflected in our genders, pointing to the one who is head over all and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Father, we may not still know what what it means by saying we should do so because of the angels or whether the hair was up or down or covering or how's that, what in the world does that mean? We know that there are certain universal truths. Father, I pray that you would bring encouragement to our hearts this morning that we love and serve a head who gave himself for us. that you would help that to propel us as men and women, as husbands and wives, as future husbands and wives in such a way that it would reflect your glory in the God-given differences of gender that you have given us. And it would point to you for your glory and for your fame. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.